Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello. Good to have you back on the show, Phoebe. Good to be back again. And for this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the uplifting and wholesome topic of death. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So, um, this is quite a heavy topic that's come from quite a light-hearted place, surprisingly enough. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I found myself watching, for the first time I'd never seen it, a frilly live action Disney movie from the 90s called Tuck Everlasting which I had heard relatively good things about so I thought it would make for some you know relaxing uh, evening viewing and little did I know a a podcast topic was just around the bend. (laughs) I mean you suspected it so little that I wasn't even with you watching it and I had to watch it separately which most of the stuff we watch is together because there's not that much time we have to watch stuff outside of that no we don't watch very much tv so we kind of uh, put everything to good use if that makes sense you have to maximize it <laughs> um and it was a delightful movie uh i don't necessarily have super strong feelings on the movie it was enjoyable um and pretty and light-hearted it's for i would say kind of pre-teens it's about a i think she's 15 year old girl in is it Edwardian times? They wear a lot of white lace. Yeah, but it's like also American, like Midwest sort of. Yeah, so I yeah I guess I'm thinking in English terms, but I, let's just say near the start of the 20th century. Yeah, and it is about this girl Winifred, and she's being threatened with sent, <laughs> being sent off to boarding school and all of the usual tropes of that era. But she meets a young handsome boy who turns out to be immortal and they fall in love and it's what happens then and him him and his whole family have drunk from the water from the fountain of youth and so have stayed the same age for i think it's 107 years which is all nice unoffensive <laughs> stuff it, really, it it was fun but what kind of made me think was that in a weird way i it did strike me that the movie is sort of an inverse of Twilight, the young adult novels that were a phenomenon of my teenage years, which I did read at the time, but I yeah I haven't revisited. And I, I'm going to make some comments on those books, but I, I have no particular wish to revisit them, so they may be inaccurate. We're not going to revisit them. We're also not going to slam them. They were what they were. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of hyperbole about them, but they're also seeing a bit of a renaissance at the moment, which I think is unmerited. That is not merited. <laughs> But uh, if anyone has managed to escape what Twilight was, it was almost essentially the same story, except the boy involved was immortal because he was a vampire. And so there was lots of, um, you know, exciting, thrilling moments. Or rather, I kind of wish there were more of them. There was a lot of the main character being um, quite petulant and boring. Um, but They were also the weirdest form of vampires ever. Yeah. Um, but that is not part of this podcast, really. No. The point being that, Tuck Everlasting, when she's offered to drink from the Fountain of Youth at the end, she makes the decision not to drink. Yeah. And chooses to go back to live a mortal life and to take on that change, uh, which is 
like like we said, the antithesis of Twilight and Bella choosing to be a vampire and choosing that immortality and that unchanging state. Yeah, and there was a couple of just small points in it, although perhaps I should have said spoiler alert for, you know, hey. Whoops, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but there's a couple of things we're going to be talking about that will flag with spoilers, but yeah, for that one, I mean... Like I said, I don't think it's the most revolutionary movie in the world. I'm not that concerned whether I've spoiled it for you or not. Um, but it was it, one of the things that I did think was interesting about it was that there was a couple of mature points about it. So essentially, uh, at the climax of the movie, the family gets found out. The the Tuck family, who, uh, who, who are immortal, have been kind of found out. And so they must move away for at least a period of time and... The, they must be separated from the young protagonist girl and so you know the boy that she's fallen in love with has has said you know drink the water and uh, I'll come back for you and so he comes back at the end of the film to find uh, it's almost a hundred years later and he finds not her but her grave and it is a very poignant ending I thought because in a lot of ways especially for teenagers I thought it brought up a lot of quite mature themes like the way that it also indicates that she was married it says it on her um, gravestone that she was a, a grandmother a mother a wife um, and then there's a second uh, it's a, she now has a double barrel surname so we can infer from that but she it doesn't introduce her potential future husband during the film it's not a love triangle unlike Twilight she just without having any promise of the future knowing that she really loves this boy Tuck but without knowing what the future will hold she still chooses the future which at that point for her is just a blank canvas and she doesn't know what's going to come she's not choosing anything concrete she's just choosing a potential future in which she has you know the cycle of life as it's supposed to be rather than being stuck in this stasis of being immortal and being the one age forever and I thought that was quite mature and it just really struck me as quite a meaningful way of looking at immortality. Yeah, definitely. It's based on a book by Natalie Babbitt and which essentially follows the exact same plot except that she's a bit younger and it's a little bit more rural and less like posh Edwardian. Mm. Uh, so you just lose some of the pretty costumes. <laughs> but you know, you don't get to see them in the, in the book anyway. But yeah, the, the family spends some time, the Tuck family this is, talking to Winnie about their immortal state. And actually that the burden that it is on them and their desire for change and the sorrow that it is to them to be stuck from that um so i was just going to read a little bit of that it's a very short book if you want to go and check it out know what this is all around us winnie said tuck who's the father of the family his voice low life moving growing changing never the same two minutes together this water you look out at it every morning and it looks the same but it ain't all night long it's been moving, coming in through the stream back there to the west, slipping out through the stream down east here. The water's always moving on, and some day, after a long while, it comes to the ocean. It goes on, Tuck repeated, to the ocean. But this rowboat now, it's stuck. If we didn't move it ourselves, it would stay here forever, trying to get loose, but stuck. That's what us Tucks are, Winnie. Stuck so as we can't move on. We ain't part of the wheel no more. Dropped off Winnie, left behind. And everywhere around us, 
Things is moving and growing and changing. You, for instance, a child now, but someday a woman. And after that, moving on to make room for the new children. I think that's just like a really important reminder of what that wheel and cycle of change looks like. That the consequence of the life we live here on earth and the ability to change and grow is death. Mm. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that being tied up a little bit in the fall and also, but yet also a gift of God to man. Um, But right now we're just going to focus on that idea as it's shown in Tuck Everlasting, I guess. Yeah, because I think, you know, this episode should come out just towards the end of Lent. I think it's a very appropriate Lent topic. I think we're looking at death through quite a lighthearted lens. We're going to be pulling from some of our favourite books and, you know, it's not necessarily a very heavy look at the, like, real burden that is the reality of of grief and pain and death in the world you know um that's obviously a very you know you can take a much more serious angle believe it or not (laughs) really i thought this was a solemn angle we were taking rachel (laughs) um but no but i think that there's something interesting which is that uh i know for the Benedictine monks in the Order of St. Benedict, I know one of the the kind of instructions with that life is to always have death before you. And that can sound like a very morbid way of thinking, but I think there's a, a whole host of different ways in which we can contemplate death and face up to its reality or interact with its reality in our world. And at different stages in our lives, we'll, we will be called on to take varying degrees of the burden of that element of our lives but that doesn't mean that it always has to be in this very very heavy way it can also be in reminders of in these stories which I think really illustrate it by often by painting the opposite which is by offering characters chances at immortality and seeing how as much as that might feel like that would free us from an an unbearable burden of death in our world that that there are different facets to that and actually, especially as humans and as a human nature, that's not really what we were being called to, that there's something in us that yearns for our eternal home with God. And so in order to attain that, we have to embrace death. And that's why I thought for a very basic, you know, like I said, I don't want to sound like I'm doing it down, but I'm just saying it's not like a revolutionary film. It is just like a like a Disney movie. It's a lovely little Disney live action. Exactly. But I think it actually says something kind of actually just managing to be a little bit profound in it. Yeah, I think the thing that actually makes it really like elevates it past like a little simpering love story mm-hmm. is the fact that it grapples with this topic, the fact that they don't end up together, that it inverts your expectation to a certain extent. Yeah. And yeah, and like you said, in the film, there's a couple of quotes that stuck out to me. So the father, like you said, Angus Tuck, he says, don't be afraid of death, we need be afraid of an unlived life. Mm. And I think that's where, again, we keep saying we're, we're hinting at stuff that's coming down the road, but to me, there's also two elements to the choice of immortality. And one is like, if, you, if you're looking for immortality, it's because you're sort of gorging on life and you want to get as much 
satisfaction and pleasure out of it um, and you don't want to relinquish that in any way by growing old and dying but then there's also the flip side which is a fear of death which leads you to li li live a very timid life because it's all framed by a fear of death and those are very much two sides of the same coin I don't think they're actually opposites I think they're kind of intertwined but they're two slightly different motivations in this yeah absolutely and I think it's framed with something that you touched on earlier which is that our like the need to die to go on to our eternal home that the reason this immortality hasn't appealed to us in the first place is because we are called to an immortal eternal life through death mm. we're not allowed to skip death to get there yeah but that that is what we're called to in the end and it's rather looking for the cheat and looking to stay with what we know instead of going mm. instead of to go on to what you don't know yeah absolutely and that obviously immortality is not necessarily something that's being offered to us i think that there's a certain portion of like the world's news that you come across of like whether it's cryogenically freezing ourselves or whether it's ha whether we could live on in AI or something like that that in some ways I am amazed at the 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 genuine real life world applications of people not wanting to die and finding ways to extend their lives perpetually um yeah there is a certain obsession with that that it's actually a real life temptation. Yeah, you know? but for the most part, it only really takes place in the form of fantasy novels. Yeah. But it's through kind of fantasy stories that we're able to assess how the things that we might want for ourselves are also not necessarily the things that would actually bring us happiness. And so that's also in the film that like the young boy that she falls in love with, I think his first name is Jesse, isn't it? Yeah. I, I th it's, the movie's called Tuck Everlasting, so I just... They call <laughs> they, them all Tuck. They're all Tuck. But anyway, Jesse, the younger boy, his older brother has had the consequence of, of losing loved ones who hadn't drunk from the fountain of youth with him, who didn't choose that life, and, and him having a huge burden to do with that. And also just that sense of, like you were saying with the quote earlier, of feeling like you're stuck and feeling like you can't move on. Um, and so I thought it was interesting how it highlighted that it's not all good. Although you know, I think it does a good job. I think for the most part, it does glamorize that family. They're a very happy, wholesome family. They live out in the woods and live this beautiful... Oh, they're delightful. <laughs> beautiful life. It's absolutely tempting. Like, you know, if I were winning, I could definitely see the temptations of that just because of their specific situation. Yeah, and she's also gotten a degree of freedom from her family and, like the strictures around that mm -hmm. but that that has kind of even with all of that joy and freedom that she's getting there she still chooses to live in the real world because their sorrow is still that they can't change and what I also thought really important about the movie but also about the book is that it's still it doesn't gloss over that fear of death either in the book it shows like Winnie realizing that she's gonna die like that 11 year old child kind of being confronted with that knowledge and automatically reacting I don't want to die and the response is no not you of course you don't want to die but it will come mm. and that it's part of the wheel that you can't pick out you can't take death out of the equation and still have the rest of it that her joy in their life is even somehow greater than their joy in the life mm. because 
she's able to grow and change and they're not. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in some ways that comes to maybe the the next point that kind of struck me, like drawing from another source, because I think when we're talking about death, there's a lot of, in some ways, caveats that are to be made that I think when we're talking about it, there's a certain sense in which death is the burden of humanity. That's what we find in, in Genesis, that, that we don't get to live forever due to the fall. And yet there's within that greater degrees of tragedy. I think if we think about dying young, that's obviously a much greater tragedy as much as, um, you know, an elderly relative passing away. I, I absolutely know that feeling that it's incredibly painful and hard to bear. But there is a, a propriety to it that isn't the same as a young person dying. Um, yeah, it's the end of a life lived well mm-hmm. that is still a sorrow because... Like you said, death is a result of the fall. Yeah. Um, and it's not really clear whether... We'll, we'll go into it later as to whether or not there may have been some degree of that for unfallen man. Yeah. But that it's very clear that we... Like, Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden after eating the, the fruit of good and evil because... So that they cannot eat of the tree of immortality mm. as well... Because de- like because it is only by dying that they can be saved. Yeah. Um, that for them to go on immortal after sinning is for them to be stuck in that state of, state of perpetual sin. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because in that we're seeing death as... It, it's two things at once. And so that brings us to Tolkien. And there was a very... I think I referenced it on the podcast before, but there was a very famous interview with Stephen Colbert where he talks about the immense tragedy that he suffered in his own life with the, the many of his family members dying at various times. And he is speaking about how that he was actually comforted by the words of Tolkien, specifically in a letter that he wrote, um, in which he says that a divine punishment is also a divine gift Mm. if accepted and that's a really key thing if accepted since its object is ultimate blessing and the supreme inventiveness of the creator will make punishments that is changes of design produce a good not otherwise to be attained and so i think stephen colbert sums it up in like uh, what what punishments of god are not also gifts and i think that's really interesting because it really plays into one of the themes that's really drawn out especially in tolkien's work in the silmarillion although i think it's present in all of his work um but he has this really interesting presentation because he has the elves who are immortal and then he has the 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 races of men who are not immortal and as far from presenting that as men necessarily being a sort of lesser, he actually kind of presents it as being a greater calling. And in fact, he calls death the gift of man, that it's something that is actually that Eru, the, the god character in, in Tolkien's world, has designated as a gift for this particular group of people. And he has a a quote in here which says, 
Death is their faith, the gift of Iluvatar, which as time wears on even the powers shall envy. But Melkor has cast his shadow upon it and confounded it with darkness and brought forth evil out of good and fear out of hope. Mm. Which is so interesting that it shows how it is both a gift and also a source of fear. At another time it says, The doom of elves is to be immortal, to love the beauty of the world, to bring it to full flower with their gifts of delicacy and perfection, to last while it lasts, never leaving it even when slain, but returning, and yet when the followers come, to teach them and make way for them, to fade as the followers grow and to absorb the life from which they both proceed. The doom, or the gift of men, is mortality, freedom from the circles of the world. That's so beautiful. I think you see a lot of the pain of that immortality in The Lord of the Rings, particularly in Lothlorien, Mm. as it's fading and it's the winter that spring will never come again. Yeah. Not being able to come back and cycle around um, is really sad. Yeah, that there is a a fixedness that they can't... Whatever happens with the world, they have to stay in in the world. Yeah, they can't escape it. Yeah, and now they they may return to their their homeland, which has less change associated with it, but they are still stuck in the world itself. Yeah. And that even if you go into the Silmarillion, there's a sense in which when they die, they actually go back to Valinor and are sort of regenerated in another way, um, rather than dying and going on to the next realm. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's a very interesting and like complex but uniquely in my in my view sort of Tolkienian like expression of what this means, that he is trying to express that actually there is something that is good and even better than immortality in death in that it allows us to enter into the presence of God. Yeah, because I think without that hope, mm-hmm. then death is only an evil. Yeah. Like, that's just a fact that... But it's only with the hope of eternal life mm-hmm. that these things become a good. Yeah, and there was this really great article. I would actually recommend reading it in full. We're going to read out a few quotes of it. but it was Quite ge- a few quotes. It was a genuinely really great article. It's called The Gift of Death by Grant Sterling. And I think it was it, it's, it's available online in PDF. It's part of, I think, the Myth Lore journal. But like I said, it's just available online in a PDF. But it'll he, be in the show notes. It'll... That is correct. I will link it in the show notes. But it was funny because like like Fifi said, I was pulling out quotes from it and then I'm just like highlighting the entire article and pasting it into my (laughs) notes. Um, And he does such a good job of bringing together all of these strands within Tolkien's work. And so he says, as Tolkien saw it, although God intends that we love the world, the messengers from Valinor to Numenor also say the love of Arda was set in your hearts by Iluvatar and he does not plant to no purpose. Yet he also intends that we see death in its appropriate time as a blessing for through it, we may escape the world and serve him in other ways and receive from him a greater reward. The immortals do not die, but it is also true that they are bound to the world for better and for worse. Mortal men must die and venture into the unknown, but they should see that Iluvatar does not do anything without a purpose. And it's interesting because, as he points out, and I've read in a couple of other places, that there's one, there's one point in which Tolkien said that in terms of the Lord of the Rings, the story is less actually about power and power seeking, which is how 
a lot of us would characterize it, but he actually says it's about, it is mainly concerned with death and immortality and a sort of obsession with deathlessness. And I think that's mm. really interesting because it plays into, like we were saying with the elves and even the men, but also the willingness to risk yourself for a greater cause. Yeah, the willingness to risk death. Mm-hmm. But then also, I think the um, we were going to talk about the impact that unnaturally extending life mm. in The Lord of the Rings, that it's the evil twist that's put on death that men might fear it, mm. then becomes the lure that the evil side uses yeah. to sway people to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, like, we'll start with the Silmarillion, because obviously that's so much based on the stories of Numenor, which are, um, if you know much about your kind of pre-Lord of the Rings mythology which I don't (laughs) they are the the elevated race of men the one that are kind of specially chosen and they live within the site of Valinor in this island of Numenor but they even though they have greatly extended lives they become kind of angry and frustrated and try to seize immortality by force by sailing to the undying lands and this causes Atlantis-like the doom of both their people and their their home. Yeah which is such an inversion of the gift that was given specifically to them Mm -hmm. which we see in Aragorn in the appendices. Yeah. um, Which is the gift of the ability to lay down their life at the right time in like almost a Christ-like way that they give up their life at the time that it's called, like very specifically at the time that they're called to do so. Yeah. Um, But that it's theirs to give up and it's only when they refuse to do that and hold on to it that they slip into madness and descend from that high standing. Yeah, absolutely. And that it's this, the point is this sense of seizing. And so it's interesting because in the mix of all of this in the Silmarillion is is Sauron, who is actually uh, egging on the Numenorians at this point. And so in the article, uh, The Gifts of Death, the author points out that Sauron saw the fear of death, which was the legacy of the time of Morgoth, still lingered on in lesser men. And so he was able to seduce them to his aid by offering immortality. Indeed, as a sign that the shadow was growing even upon Numenor, three of his new ring rates were Numenorian lords. But the gift of immortality was a sham. They had as it seemed unending life, yet life became unbearable to them. The natural span of human life could be artificially lengthened by the rings of power, but it did not bring joy to its long-lived recipients. That's such a powerful contrast to put the ring wraiths beside the elves Mm. as like two immortal beings, one which have this gift naturally and the other which has seized it. Yeah, absolutely. Tolkien has this great sense of that there is a fitting amount of time for each of the Mm -hmm. creations of the world. And I think we all know that Bilbo line of like, I feel like butter stretched over too much bread. I love that line. And that, you know, once, once that time is is at its end, once you've stretched it out as far as it really can go, that it is almost impossible to draw joy out of life. And we really see that with Gollum. Like, he gets the ring, he gets to live for hundreds of years, and all he does is sit at the bottom of the mountain, stroking his ring and catching fish. What are you <laughs> getting out of all of this time? And it's it's essentially nothing. Yeah, I think that's kind of 
a key point here, which is how are you using the time that's given to you? Mm-hmm. And the challenge of using it well. Yeah. And part of using it well means not letting that fear of death override your decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that it is taken as a part of life and not thought but not like run ran away from either. Yeah. And that there is a sense in which um that there is a real detriment in this kind of sense of trying to dupe or seize or artificially lengthen or draw out or work against the natural span of life. And I think to move from Tolkien to his his friend Lewis, as we are as we are wont on Risky Enchantment to do, I think it was you, Phoebe, who reminded me of how this is picked up really wonderfully in The Magician's Nephew. Well, it's so tied in with when we were talking about the fall and the uh, the tree of life that it just had to come. It springs to mind, doesn't yep, it? Yeah, it does. So, I mean, maybe if you want to remind for the context for this in The Magician's Nephew. Sure. So, in The Magician's Nephew, the two children, Diggory and Polly, have gone first to a world called Charn, where they found this evil witch who destroyed that world mm-hmm. um, and has preserved herself immortally. And then they end up through a s- cycle of things in Narnia at its beginning, as it's being sung into being. Mm. And that's how the witch gets to Narnia. Mm. Which I think is such an interesting element of how like evil is brought into the world that like <laughs> yeah. e- even at the very beginning, you know, evil is present. Even just as Aslan is creating this new perfect world, there is already evil present in it by just the workings of whatever it is, fate or... or by human error and yeah. human sinfulness. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and so, yeah, I think the witch flees into the countryside. Yeah, so she flees from Aslan Mm -hmm. and then she finds this, essentially the Garden of Eden, Mm. on a mountain and Diggory and Polly are sent to get an apple from the Tree of Life to plant to protect Narnia from her. Mm. And they find her eating one of these apples. Yeah, and playing in the background of all of this is the fact that Diggory his mother is dying at home back on earth yeah he's he's been upset and frustrated and worried about this the whole time and so he hears about this this apple of youth he he hears that he's in the land of youth he's like it is constantly playing on his mind that like perhaps there's a way to help his mother yeah and the witch really kind of plays on that and tries to get him to take the apple that he's supposed to be bringing back to narnia to just go home, which he can do, because in only in this book do they ha- actually have the power to jump back and forth themselves. Um, and, yeah, so he's tempted to go home and resists that temptation and gives up on the idea. Mm. But then the whole thing is kept being explained to them. And Aslan explains that because she's eaten this apple, that the rest are all now horror to her. And that is what happens of those who pluck and eat fruit at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. Mm. And Polly then asks, I suppose because she took it in the wrong way, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't make her always young and all that. 
Alas, says Aslan, shaking his head, it will. These things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. Mm. I think that's such a powerful representation even of like this great magic user who has been empress of her own world for so long and now has you know gotten what she always thought would be her heart's desire and yet because of the evil in her heart and the evil way in which she went about it that that will only be an increasing burden to her and even then as the books progress that you kind of see her having to like fade and diminish and being cast out again and again mm. um, and almost that her not dying but coming but being less powerful and having to like fight her way back as a snake even yeah um yeah that kind of built into the book of that sorrow and even i think it's really interesting because then you know diggory kind of plucks up the courage to ask aslan about about his mother and what would have happened if he had taken mm, take, so powerful taken the apple as as he was tempted to do and aslan says understand then that it would have healed her but not to your joy or hers the day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and and said it would have been better to die in that illness And Diggory could say nothing, for tears choked him, and he gave up all hopes of saving his mother's life. But at the same time, he knew that the lion knew what would have happened, and that there might be things, more terrible even, than losing someone you love by death. But now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. It will not, in your world, give endless life but it will heal. Go pluck her an apple from the tree. And that tree being the tree that has grown from the apple that he planted, not so like it's the, the fruit of the fruit, yeah. not, not the apple itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting that there's such a, an, I, I think such a true representation of the mercy of God, which is that gifts are offered to you. You can't seize them, but that there is a mercy of gift and it really reminds me I think it was in one of the readings I think maybe yesterday or maybe it was just in morning prayer I can't remember but it was the 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 line from the gospels of 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 Jesus and the leper and you know if you want to you can heal me Mm. and Jesus replies of course I want to heal you and I think that's such a powerful line and it doesn't mean that there is ever any guarantee of you know medical healing on earth Um, it can happen it does happen it happens through medicine and it happens through prayer and it can happen in a variety of ways but it's not guaranteed and yet at the same time there is a sense in which we're seeing here that it is good to be healed and that healing is possible and we should rejoice and celebrate it and seek it where it is possible. Yeah, that it is good to live our lives to their fullest extent through the permission of medicine and the healing of God. Mm. Um, we're not by any means saying by this that you shouldn't extend your life by medicine. Yeah. <laughs> but that at the same time, you also see with like with Diggory having to have give up the apple in the first place that the sacrifice comes first. Mm. Um, just as death comes before eternal life, 
the sacrifice comes before the gift of healing is given. Yeah. And in a yeah. sense, having to hand it over to God, mm-hmm. having to relinquish your own sense of control over a situation before you can actually receive the gifts. And I think it's interesting because what happens is that, you know, uh, Diggory's mother is healed of this this illness. But as Aslan says, it's not going to give her endless life. She is going to have a death. It'll come later. It'll come at what we might perhaps call a more appropriate time and after a longer life, after more time spent with her son, but it will come. And so there's a sense in which there's, there has to be that, that, that we're being asked to cultivate a proper attitude to death, which is to neither treat it totally cavalierly and like it doesn't matter. And well, like as if death isn't a tragedy and that as if we shouldn't forestall it. And yet at the same time, to see a, com- a life lived well as a blessing and the ability to then lay down at the end of a life and say that that, that, that was enough and I'm ready to go to God. Yeah, and it's also, it's not about eking every drop of like ple- of pleasure out of this life because, oh, I'm going to die anyway. Yeah. But in some ways being ready for death that we might enter eternal life. Mm, yeah, and having a sense of having a well-ordered attitude towards death, which helps us to embrace it and embrace what God is offering us both here and in the next life. And I think that kind of brings us back actually to Tolkien, because we mentioned it earlier. There's a sort of interesting section at the end of, it's in the, the appendices at the end of The Lord of the Rings, where we get the story of Aragorn and Arwen. And I think especially reading it at first glance with our current modern lens, I think it can be a little bit daunting because Arwen gives up her immortal life in order to be with Aragorn, who then lives for a very long number of years because he has truly embraced his Numenorean heritage to be this sort of higher form of man. But he does die. And as you mentioned, Phoebe, I think something that sort of, from a Catholic perspective, and knowing that Tolkien was a Catholic, reading it can kind of set our hair on end, which is that he he talks about setting down at his own choice. And it says, Aragorn says to Arwen, take counsel with yourself, beloved, and ask whether you indeed have me wait until I wither and fall from my high feet, witless and unmanned. Nay, lady, I am the last of the new Norians and the last king of the elder days. And to me has been given not only a span thrice that of men of Middle-earth, but also the grace to go at my will and give back the gift. Now, therefore, I will sleep. Mm. And I think at first glance, there's a part of me that feels anxious about reading that because in all it almost sounds like a, an apology for euthanasia mm. that would you would you like to see me become old and withered and uh, not be the powerful man that I once was um, and that instead I'm going to choose to die now and certainly if we are to read it that way which I think we're going to go on and highlight that that's actually as much as that's what it might seem like at first glance that's actually not at all what Tolkien is saying here he's actually playing on something which is a little bit more nuanced and first of all it's that when you understand him in the context of his Numenorean ancestors who like we've said have this precedence of saying it's never enough I need to hold on to power I need to hold on to life 
forever as much as possible and every kind of curtailing of that is an imposition on me and I will fight against it to the to the extent of violating the laws of God I think if you're if you're reading it with that point of view you're saying no he's choosing to not hold on to power for as long as possible to not extend beyond what is actually rightfully his time and but there's an even kind of further element of it which I'm going to give full props to Phoebe who when we were listening to this on audiobook recently immediately called it out saying I feel like that's kind of a reference to this to unfallen man yeah yeah that to me it feels a little bit like one of the trains of thought that isn't isn't a doctrine of the church by any means but is a speculation of theology Mm. that death to unfallen man may have been that he could give up his life to go on to higher things to be with God. Mm. Um, and the more tangible reference that we have to that is in the assumption mm. of Our Lady finishing her time here on earth and being drawn up to heaven. Yeah. Giving up her life here on earth to go on. Yeah. And the most important thing is that it's a perspective of going on and choosing to move forward um, and accepting the sacrifice that comes with it, which is the giving up of one's life. Yeah. And he actually specifically references the assumption in one of his letters. He, I, I'm not sure whether he ever actually sent the letter. I could be wrong. It might have been one of his unsent letters, but he added a note later to sort of expand on this about saying the assumption of Mary, the only unfallen person may be regarded as in some ways a simple regaining of unfallen grace and liberty. She asked to be received and was having no further function on earth. Though, of course, even if unfallen, she was not pre-fall. Her destiny, in which she had cooperated, was far higher than that of any man would have been had the fall not occurred. It was also unthinkable that her body, the immediate source of our Lord, without other physical intermediary, should have been disintegrated or corrupted, nor could it surely be long separated from him after the ascension. There is, of course, no suggestion that Mary did not age at the normal rate of her race, but certainly that this process cannot have proceeded or been allowed to proceed to the decrepitude of loss or vitality and comeliness. The assumption was in any case as distinct from the ascension as the raising of Lazarus from the self-resurrection. So what he's saying there is just that Mary in that way should be the model for how we're understanding this. And I think it's very key that he's talking about how having no further function to serve, because in some ways I think we think of function as productivity and what we can contribute, but that Function can also be the conduit through which people receive grace. And I think when we're thinking of euthanasia, there's a sense in which you're cutting off the ability for people to serve you, for people to be in your life and minister to you as as you're going through the end of your journey. Yeah, because I think the thing that maybe is a little bit difficult here in terms of what we see of people with old age Mm. is that he's saying of her not, like falling into decrepitude and Aragorn not falling into decrepitude. And yet, as Catholics, we also firmly believe that for normal people, mm-hmm. accepting that fall into decrepitude, if that is what you're called to, and allowing people to serve you in it for as long as you are called to be in this world. Yeah. Um, and it's the difference between 
keeping the gift for as long as it is given for and not selfishly casting it, not casting it away yourself, mm. but being ready to offer it up at the proper time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's such a like difficult tension to hold and talk about. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's really important to say that it's both. Yeah, and that I think Tolkien would also agree mm. with us on this. I don't think we're. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I've, I have confidence in in Tolkien's <laughs> ca- Catholic <laughs> yeah. understanding of things, but I do think he is pulling out something really interesting, which is, is the sense in which things can be ordered to a proper time. There is one of the points in we had Holly Ordway on the show a couple, I guess, like a year ago now. I can't even remember, but she was talking about her book Tolkien's Modern Reading, and how. There's a quote from Tolkien in it about how he actually really enjoyed seeing the Peter Pan play as it, it was a play first before it was a, a novel. And he, he definitely liked it, but there was a sense in which he was a little bit concerned with the way it sort of shirked the d- darker themes that were introduced into it. And he, uh, he I think it's actually Lewis who coined the term Peter Pantheism, which is that sense of um, never growing up and never getting old. And actually, I think he potentially took issue with the line that Peter Pan has, which is that, um, oh, to die would be an awfully great adventure. And we're going to contrast that with a another quote that seems almost identical, but is actually in a slightly different context. Because I think what Tolkien is taking issue with there is a sense of being cavalier about death when you're too young to reckon with the tragedy that it would be at that stage of your journey um Mm -hmm. that it is a bad thing for young people to die and i think tolkien having gone through world war one particularly i think more so for world war one than world war two because they had the precedence of world war one behind them world war one the young men were sent off with the sort of boyish gallant hope that it was going to be a jolly good adventure and maybe some of them would die but you know overall it was going to be an awfully big adventure and what they were presented with was a a killing machine in which they were thrown into as sort of fodder and it it's it was a an awful destructive way of viewing life that whatever you might think about various necessities of it but the the sense in which it wasn't an adventure it was just another number on a sheet or another person down the line that they stopped being human and I think he had a real issue with seeing it as seeing death in this sort of cavalier way from a young person's perspective. Yeah and I think it's also tied in with maybe the story not grappling with the darker side of what it means to not grow up to a full extent. Yeah. He comments that children are meant to grow up and die and not to become Peter Pans. Mm. That and the key, like you were saying, to with that young person dying, mm. the key is to grow up. Yeah. And then to die at the end of that. Yeah. Is the goal. Yeah. Uh, or like the proper place for it. And obviously tragedies do happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're like as we were saying, they are more. It is more tragic for a young person to die. Yeah. Um, and that has to be grappled with. But there's also, I think, C.S. Lewis talks about this as well of younger people being more willing to take to do the courageous things and risk their lives in it mm. which can go too far in mm. the case of world war one but also as people as you get older the knowledge of your own mortality can kind of like eat into that courage and eat away at it mm. 
in a way that means maybe not taking enough risks yeah. or being too careful of your own life and too afraid of death. It's the it's the part that we read out from Azam, which is saying that there might be something worse mm-hmm. than the death of a loved one yeah. at any stage. Um, and so, you know, as much as we might say we're kind of ranking tragedies, but that it is not always the case that death is the absolute worst thing that can happen. And yet it is not something that should be taken flippantly. And so the sort of parallel quote that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to pull out was actually from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, where they're talking about Nicholas Flamel and giving up the Philosopher's Stone and destroying it and Harry being like, but doesn't that mean he will die? And Dumbledore says, to one as young as you, I'm sure it seems incredible, but to Nicholas and Perinel, it really is like going to bed after a very, very long day. After all, to the well-organised mind, death is but the next great adventure. In some ways, that's almost exactly the same words as Peter Pan. But the point is, is it comes at the end of a very long life. And perhaps even it's, you know, you could read the slight suggestion and overly long life like a, a bilbo or a, a golem yeah. that it comes to like lying finally being allowed to lie down and sleep and yeah. change into death yeah and that having been given the gift of the stone in some capacity the courage to then give it up mm-hmm. to say i have it but will i keep it yeah and that in some ways it can be then a release, like they said, to, to lie down after a very, very long day. But yeah. Yeah. And there's a great, he finishes that quote with, um, you know, the stone was not really such a wonderful thing. As much money in life as you could want, the two things most human beings would choose above all. The trouble is, humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things which are worst for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's tied back into that idea of Tuck Everlasting because part of the story of Tuck Everlasting is then protecting the Fountain of Life from the multitudes who would just run for it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. That, that's in, that's in um, The Magician's Nephew as well, yeah. which is Uncle Andrew, who's also there at the beginning of the world, says, the Fountain of Youth, I could make so much money out of it. <laughs> I could build a spa. <laughs> and so much so he doesn't even think of his... his sister diggory's mother who's dying that he's like no why would he think of that don't don't be ridiculous there's money to be made (laughs) so yeah there is that sense in which you know that these things do kind of corrupt us and that actually there's a sense of being properly ordered to the amount of time that we're given and that we're called to live in a particular time and i think actually to to bring it back to tolkien but in a very different story i just want to it's not really about immortality it is is kind of about death he has a short story called leaf by niggle we've done an awful lot of stories but it's great (laughs) it's a great one and i don't know i almost feel like i should devote a whole episode to it but maybe we will someday maybe we will but it's about it's a sort of I don't want to use the word allegory because I feel like uh, Tolkien would come and, and haunt me forever for suggesting, an <laughs> for suggesting that he wrote an allegory. But it's about a, a really interesting theme of how, as an artist, I, I, a slight aside, we're just, the, the Oscars are just over and, and one of the films nominated for that was The Banshees of Inishirin, and which was directed by Martin McDonough, who we talked about in the um, episode on Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, but I didn't find this particular film as compelling because I think he actually introduces the very themes that Leaf by Niggle suggests, but he doesn't really actually 
go anywhere with them. And these themes are, is it better to invest time into being an artist and creating something that will give good things to the world? Or is it better to be good to your neighbors and kind and nice and all of the, and the way that in some ways it's very difficult to do both. You can either devote all of your time to one thing or you can constantly answer the interruptions of another. But you can to- be a nice person or a great artist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't want to go that far. And what Tolkien does from his Catholic point of view is take it a step further and then shows how actually how you can do both and how it's actually necessary to do both. And also that how you can never actually fulfill your, I guess, artistic potential in life and that you have to trust it to God to see its full flourishing. So the story is about uh, a, a guy called Niggle who is trying to paint and he's painting a tree and he's spending all of this time on like a leaf and building it up leaf by leaf. And it's a sort of strange fairy tale fantasy world in which there's they know that he has to take a journey which is obviously death at the end at the end and like he has to prepare and there's a whole thing about having your garden in order and his neighbor parish who's constantly annoying him and asking him for things and you know um and as he's coming to the end of his life as his journey is approaching niggle is desperately trying to finish his painting and parish is like oh there's a storm and my you know the tiles have fallen off my roof and my wife is sick and i need you to go get a doctor and at that moment niggle has to choose between serving his neighbor and trying to at least making a vague attempt at finishing his work and it's to me it's really interesting in this idea of death in that there is a certain amount of time that is allotted to him and that it's up to us to try and make that balance within the time that we have and then as we were saying with Aragorn to lay down your tools there is a sense in which you have to stop and lay them down yeah there's a great point where he's kind of like his pictures growing and growing and growing he's tacking on canvas here and there and part of like part of his way to like try and find more time for it in his head is to say um i wish i was more strong-minded he sometimes said to himself meaning that he wished other people's troubles did not make him feel uncomfortable but for a long time he was not seriously perturbed At any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey, he used to say. And yet he was beginning to see that he could not put off his start indefinitely. The picture would have to stop growing and get finished. Mm. And as I said, it doesn't get finished. And in, in fact, in many ways, it sort of gets dismantled. But when he passes through to this afterlife, and there's more to it than just that he ends up in a nice place, there, there's quite a lot of interesting moments in, the, in that journey that's referenced. Um, but he's, it says, Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind, that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch, He gazed at his tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves that he had ever laboured at were there, as he had imagined them, rather than as he had made them. And there were others there that had only budded in his mind, and many that might have budded if only he had had the time. Nothing was written on them, but they were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. 
And I don't think I actually have the, the full quote there, but it goes on to say that actually there's also an element of the tree that unexplicably speaks of his neighbour parish. That there's something in the tree that is itself influenced by parish and his his relationship with parish. And then mm, as par- that's so interesting. And then as parish comes to to the the afterlife, this this kind of afterlife that Tolkien is imagining, that the two of them then sort of collaborate together. It's and, really cute, <laughs> and it's so interesting. I'd really recommend that you read it. But that like it shows how even as much as you can think as an artist that it's up to me to find all the time and to cut myself off from the world, but that actually embracing the world is the thing that helps this art flourish, but also that there is no way for Niggle to have seen the full fruits of this work without the grace of God, that like it's only in the afterlife that we see its full flourishing and that he couldn't have achieved it by himself on earth. Yeah, like he's seeing the mountains in the backdrop that he hadn't even gotten as far as imagining properly yet. Yeah. That there is that like completion to it given yeah. um, in the afterlife, which is just such a beautiful representation for like any attempted art in this life. Yeah. <laughs> that the completion is there in heaven waiting for us. And I think it's interesting how it's funny how there's so many trees involved in this. <laughs> You know, we start. start Tolkien loves his trees. This is true, but we start with the tree of uh, the trees in the the Garden of Eden, and then we've got the tree in. Well, actually, we started with the tree at at, at Tolkien everlasting because the um, fountain of youth comes from the base of a tree. This is true. So it feels like the whole cycle of this is is bound up in trees. But actually, to take one more step further into a, a story that isn't about trees at all, but I think <laughs> we'll find a tree now. <laughs> I think is it a very interesting way to sum up the end of this discussion, which is to talk about a film called About Time. And this is one where I definitely want to flag a spoiler. I was saying this to Phoebe. I know I do try to flag spoilers when we're talking about things. Usually we failed with Tuck Everlasting yeah. earlier. Sorry about that. Um, but I think partly one of the reasons we failed is that I don't necessarily feel like the sort of hyperbole around spoilers is really necessary. I don't think it often detracts from a story to necessarily know where it's going. But this is a story in which it's not so much that there's like a plot twist or something like that, but it just handles the arc of this story in a very unexpected way. And so I would really recommend you watch it. Like I said, it's called About Time. It's I think it's a Richard Curtis film. It's in that very... Uh, classic English rom-com style. It actually feels like it carries some of the charm of the sort of 90s rom-coms through to the modern day. I really like it. But as much as it starts off as a a rom-com, it goes on to be more about a meditation about life and how to live life. Because it has this it's in many ways just like I said a straightforward rom-com but it has this plot device in which and it goes unexplained the main character Tim is told at the start by his father that all of the men in his family line um, can travel through time (laughs) specifically that they can jump back to any point of their of their past life Mm -hmm. and like essentially like brain swap back to there yeah change something and, and then jump back to where they were again. Or just keep living. Or keep living if they choose. But yeah. they can go either way. Yeah. 
And like I said, there isn't there isn't like a whole world building around it. The mechanism is go into a dark place and close your eyes and you'll find yourself where you need to be. That wasn't the spoiler. <laughs> that's not the spoiler. That's introduced at the very start. But the way it deals with this plot point is actually very interesting. Like I said, it's not necessarily about immortality, although I'm sure you could rig that system to keep going back in the loop so that you just keep living forever and ever. But it has a very interesting kind of twist to this. And this is where maybe I would say, if you're really keen to see this... It's a great movie. I would really recommend it. Maybe just skip. This is the last thing we're talking about. So either if you want to finish the episode earlier, I don't mind. But you can skip until we're talking about what we're enjoying at the moment and all those things. But this is is the last section that we're talking about. But it, it has a really interesting twist, which is that once you have a child um, that essentially kind of curtails your ability to go back in time because it... You, you essentially unmake the child. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. And so there is a sort of limitation to when you can go back to. And so at some point in the story, Tim has to decide whether he wants to be able to keep continuing to go into his past to a certain time, to a certain event, or to to, to spend time with a particular person. Or he can choose to have another child with his wife and hope for the future. Yeah, which is where we really tried to tie it into this, that it's about choosing the future and choosing that change over the ability to keep going back to the past and gleaning more from it. Yeah, and, and that, you know, at some point he has to let go of this enchanted past or enchanted stasis like you could say almost like the static nature of immortality and that you can always go back and and do whatever you like or you can choose the future and you can choose to hope for better things and let go of the gifts that were in the past that are now gone from your life and it's so beautiful it's so moving and there's also a, a quote, which again, isn't really a spoiler, but I just think it's such a, a lovely treatment. But I do think it's wonderful to hear it first in the movie. But if you do know the movie or if you don't mind that much, here, here's the quote. It's, a, it's, it's Tim's father teaching him how to actually fully get the most out of this power. And so, it, and Tim, it's in a voiceover says, and so he told me the secret formula for happiness. Part one of the two part plan was that I should just get on with ordinary life, living it day by day, like anyone else. But then came part two of Dad's plan. He told me to live every day, again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. And in the end, I think I've learned the final lesson from my travels in time. And I've even gone one step further than my father did. The truth is, I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to this one, to enjoy it, as if it were the full final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. I love that. It's so full of that, like, carpe diem, seize the day, and yet also fully accepting of human limitation yeah and in some ways isn't it such a like positive spin on memento mori Mm -hmm. that like i said at the start we're in we're just coming to the end of lent but that isn't that such a beautiful way to to embrace memento mori to live your life as if you were 
coming back to that moment to absolutely savor it and embrace the gifts that are in it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to not be running away from the fear of the what might be up ahead that you're 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 not letting anxieties and worries and fears interrupt your ability to receive the blessings of that day. Yeah, that you're living it as if you'd come back to just live it again to enjoy it. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. film. I would really recommend it. I almost got a little bit teary reading <laughs> that, that, that quote. Yeah. Um, so I hope this was, as we said, a relatively lighthearted but interesting discussion on death. And I think we also wanted to give, just before we go on to what we're enjoying at the moment, we wanted to give a shout out to one of um, Katie Marquette's podcasts on Born of Wonder. It was one of her earliest episodes, but it's also kind of around this theme of like making the best of the time you have now um which is her groundhog day episode i think it's episode four of her very first season but i would go and check that out yeah it was really lovely so yeah definitely we often play on the same themes i've just seen that she's just released an episode on irish saints so (laughs) clearly we're thinking on parallel lines i'll need to reach out to her and see how she's (laughs) she's getting on maybe have her back on the podcast i guess the only thing left is also to say you know um i hope you have a very happy easter um and a and a holy holy week and all of those things that are that are just on the horizon when this podcast comes out And a very productive, end of Lent and joyful celebration, seizing the day. Absolutely. So, as we mentioned, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, I just finished a book called Good Evening, Mrs. Craven, which is the wartime stories of Molly Panter Downs. And it's a... um, it's a Persephone book publication, um, which is lovely. Uh, but it's just a collection of um, short war stories from um, the Second World War of the people at home. Mm. And it's just a lovely kind of insight into human nature, quite interesting. And they're all quite different. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed that. And I'm also enjoying a podcast called The Thing About Austin, which takes a dive into like some niche aspect of Jane Austen's world each week and kind of explains the context of that um to help like flesh out the novels yeah wonderful it's great fun uh, for myself, I was saying to Phoebe, I don't know what I've been enjoying at the moment. I've actually been a bit poorly. By the time she's it... finally alive again, <laughs> <laughs> I, go, I went to the doctor, and as we said, the benefits of medicine and 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 the blessings that can be. But by the time this comes out, I should be back from a holiday. So please God, that will have gone well. If it has, you'll hear about it in the following episode. But <laughs> but I don't know just yet. Uh, so I guess I don't know what what am I enjoying at the moment. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yeah, we watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I did enjoy that a lot. Uh, I haven't seen it in quite a while. I thought it was super fun. The costumes are gorgeous. The music is great. So yeah, I think that'll be my thing I've been enjoying at the moment. There we go. Um, And other than that, all the usual, you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Risking Enchantment Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Seeking Watson. You can sign up to our newsletter on the website and all of the links will be in the description. And all that's left to say is thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter 
with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.